Silver, a show about sports, art, and the space they share. My name is Abigail Smithson. Today's guest is visual artist Gina Adams. Gina Adams' cross-media studio work includes the reuse of antique quilts and broken treaties between the United States and Native American tribes, sculpture, ceramics, painting, printmaking, and drawing. She is a descendant of both indigenous and colonial Americans. I found Gina's work at an exhibition called To the Hoop at the Weatherspoon Museum of Art in Greensboro, North Carolina. Her decorative basketball molds that were included in the show are so striking and show that the ubiquitous form of the basketball is really an instigator for conversations in many directions and beyond the actual game of basketball. And there's so much more of her work that speaks to injustices, oppression, and acknowledgement of the true history of the United States. Gina is an assistant professor of art at Emily Carr University of Art and Design in Vancouver. I really hope you all enjoy the conversation, which focuses on Gina's work, but also a lot on recent events around the murder of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor, and the protests that have been organized in response. I would like it if this podcast could continue to be a place for difficult and uncomfortable conversations, um, as they are more necessary now than ever. Um, I feel that uh, the discussion should be around the issues of identifying and dismantling white supremacy. I think that I have to do my part to discuss systemic racism and take action in ways that can help the fight to undo the institutions this country is built on that are toxic and deep-rooted. And, you know, when I, Gina and I have been going back for back and forth for a few months about scheduling this interview, and when it came time to decide on the exact time on um, June 5th when we spoke, there was a lot of uncertainty around this conversation. Is this a, the good t- a good time to be talking about her personal work, her artwork? Um But I just I felt like her work spoke to a lot of what we're talking about on the news and um, what we're suggesting, you know, what was being suggested to read right now and all of that. And it just seems like um, a good time to to find voices that that have already been thinking about these issues and, um, you know, working through them with their own practice. And yes, I just I suggest that to Gina that our conversation about her work would inevitably lead to a conversation about what's happening, and it is important to have these conversations. And neither one of us want to draw attention to ourselves, but we do want to um, use whatever um, skills or platform or uh, just anything we have to, to, to discuss what's happening um, and and focus on that. So I so appreciate Gina joining and I appreciate you listening and I hope that everyone is taking care of themselves and um, that we can continue to uh, talk about these things for um, yeah the the foreseeable future until uh, yeah we we just need to these conversations are important so thank you again so yeah could we talk about the the treaties um, the broken treaty quilts 
that you have made. And I, I watched a video of you actually reading one of these broken treaties while wearing one of your broken treaty quilts, which was really wonderful. Um, and I, I think also I just want to um, make sure that I'm saying the name of the tribe that 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 you are a part of, um, uh, Ojibwe. Ojibwe? Yeah. Yeah, it could be Ojibwe, Ojibwa. There's like an Eastern Western dialect of Ojibwemoan, so it can be either, and both are right. Okay. Okay, and this yeah, is... I usually say Ojibwa. Okay. Because that's the dialect that I learned the language with. So. Ojibwa. Ojibwa. And this is the tribe that your grandfather was a part of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And it was, so my grandfather uh, was from White Earth Reservation and taken, he was like taken by one of his uncles who was one of the first children to be sent. He was the son, his, his given name by um, Richard Henry Pratt at Carlisle School was Charles Wright. And he was... Charles Wright was taken about 1869, I think, 1869 to Carlisle School. Uh, when I did my Smithsonian Artist Research Fellowship, and I was in the photo archives of the Natural History Museum in Suitland, Maryland, I discovered photographs. I was there to study the John Choate images from Carlisle, but I made this connection that I didn't expect to make. My grandfather told me to watch for Charles Wright. He told me most of my ancestors' names to know in Ojibwe language, but then he also told me some names in English. And I always, the two names in English, John Bulow and Charles Ray, were always, um, had this other energy attached to them and a distrust. And um, he told me about Charles Wright to be careful, watch out for the back of his hands. Like he was warning me to not trust everyone in your family, you know? Like you can't trust in every single, incident you are or place or space you are you have to be aware and um every time charles wright like so charles wright was a model student he after he um his time at carlisle was over and he like success was a successful student and the successful students were the ones that got all the attention um if you know you continued to speak your language or um didn't do what the school wanted you to do, then you could even die because you were punished so severely and not fed. And could could it we? It was just such a heartbreak. I just want to, um, because you're saying all of this information, just in case anyone who's listening is not aware of what Carlisle was at the time, if we could just talk about that really briefly. So Carlisle was the first. It was the first um, education experiment for Native American indigenous people that was created by Richard Henry Pratt, who was a former soldier for in the Civil War. And then he was part of the Indian Wars. He was like a colonel in the Indian Wars. And he was part of mass massacre movements and the menace destiny movement West and, um, he found that 
that wasn't taking care of the what he can they considered the u s government considered the Indian problem, and so it was his idea to create with the backing of the u s government to create boarding schools so from the time of the Louisiana purchase to um and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. In the time period from 1864 on, the government was working really hard to build systems where chiefs, when they signed treaties, they were given peace treaty medals, but they were also given notice that their their sons needed to go to boarding school. And that was their male sons, specifically because they were future chiefs. Um, Wow, so taking away the leadership. Um, taking away the leadership, which was also taking taking away the language, of course, as we know it. So Carlisle, boarding, Carlisle Indian Boarding School was in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. It was the first of what became 320 boarding schools in the United States that opened between 1867. The last one to close was 1990. Wow. I'm now getting it confused with the U.S. and Canada. I believe it was 1991. And that was in the Thompson Indian School in Seneca, New York. So every single state, every single community, these were, these were in local communities. These were part of our educational, early educational landscape and how the educational public education system was formed in the United States. And it's not taught. It's not taught in schools. It's not a history that people know. It's, it's, um, so anyways, so um, I was studying these images and wanted to find images of my ancestors and I asked the photo archivist and she found a lot of images of white earth of my ancestors. And I asked her in the names of my people that my grandfather had told me. So my connection with these treaties, you know, I grew up knowing quite a bit as a young person, just from my grandfather taking these walks, talking about plant spirit medicine. He was he spent his life being an organic farmer in Southern Maine and um, did everything. He did everything he learned at Carlisle to be an indentured servant. That's what they trained students to do. The model students were trained to go out into the world and work for other people and do the labor for other people. So women were often taught to cook, to sew, uh, to work in households. Men were often taught to work in on the land, in the barns, animal husbandry, you know, any kind of farming, any kind of, um, I, I wouldn't say construction. They weren't really taught construction. They were mostly, it was an, an interesting twist on um, what we might think of an arts and crafts school. They were taught newspaper, um, um, typeset, um, shoemaking, tin work. Um, so they had all these like classrooms where these things, skills were taught again to the model students. So I was doing when 
I grew up in Maine. I stayed in Maine until my youngest son went to school, went to college. And then we traveled for a bit, about two years off the grid. And I was thinking this whole time, it's time to go to get my master's degree. Um, I had been starting my research practice and I was really interested in this whole time I'm interested in what can I do about the treaties because my conversations I would have with people, people I knew, people in my family, people that I went to school with, um, didn't know anything about the treaties. Had this idea of, you know, on the eastern coast of the United States, they have this idea of what they think Native America is. And even though there are indigenous people in their communities who are from the people of the land of their communities, they don't recognize them. They see them as just other and less than. And they often um, stereotype heavily, like Halloween, they dress up as Native people or what they think they are. They they want to have this mystical quality, but they they really don't understand what they really don't understand or take responsibility for what they're doing. So when I was in graduate school, I started studying the history of um, the West and the Midwest and the the results of Manifest Destiny. But that time period of the Indian Wars, and I started looking at the Indian Wars newspapers and started studying the font. And I found that the font was called Gaudi Old Style. It was a woodblock letterpress font. Um, it probably was also a metal font, but um, they were really um, like a lead type, but they were really super expensive. So um, I looked in Word and thought, I wonder if this still exists. Sure enough, it did. But then I thought, I'm going to make these giant signs. And I was thinking, I was looking at other contemporary artists who I've studied quite a bit font word and image. And that goes back to my undergraduate training at Maine College of Art as well. I took a class called Word and Image there. Mm-hmm. And now I'm going to teach it at Emily Carr, which is super cool. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I found, I blew it up to be the size that I'm currently using. I'm still using the same font I created in graduate school. Um, but I didn't actually do this work until right about Right after I did my thesis work, I started, I just went right into making this large font and creating the first stencils and cutting the first letters out of Calico. Um, Calico, so the treaties, there are 364 treaties between the United States government and Native American nations. They over, the land masses overlap each other. They often include multiple, multiple, multiple nations or, or tribes, but nations and of people and they were also the united states government was moving 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 people and forcing people into other nations lands not considering that you know they speak different languages um the united states government would send out um um interpreters they called them and government like they'd send out like three people with maybe a military cavalry of sorts and they would meet the the chiefs and maybe a few representatives. They would tell them in English what was happening. Um, the interpreter would transcribe 
phonetically the names of the people and then force them say this is what you have to do you and sign their x mark now let's also remember there was famine there was there was force force removal assimilation annihilation so they were there was smallpox and in some cases smallpox blankets from people who had died had been collected and given to entire nations that were forced to move on reservations so they were promised goods in these treaties and then they were given tainted goods or spoiled goods so there was never there was never an idea behind these treaties that the people the indigenous people of the land would even survive like there and there was even a hope that they wouldn't so when I was growing up, we never, I, we never learned anything about Native American history in schools. And whenever I would say I'm Ojibwa and my teachers would get mad. Whenever I would say Carlisle school, I would get in trouble. Like I, I was told several times I was lying. So it just proved this like, um, and my grandfather always saw that I was an artist, which was really super cool. I didn't really completely understand what I meant that meant to me other than I used to draw on all the walls and always wanted to make things. And I was always my my mother was always sewing. I'm a fourth generation quilt maker. Although I never really I learned how to make those quilts for my aunt and the quilts that she would make. She taught me how to sew by hand and do all the really beautiful quilts patterns but I kind of didn't always I didn't want to make those you know she had she made like several hundred quilts um she's still quilting but I think I I found that I had to go through a series of of tests and this is what I do in my research is I do a lot of tests to see if something's visually working or not uh because if I, I learned in undergrad a lot of processes. And then in my eight years between undergrad and grad school, I created a lot of work that I wanted to have social impact with. But I also was watching to see if it did that and it didn't. It, you know, the work was beautiful. The work was colorful. You know, people would buy it. It was successful mm-hmm. in that way. But it wasn't often the pretty things wanted to be talked about, but not the message behind them. So when I went to graduate school, I chose the University of Kansas because I wanted to work with indigenous scholars in many multiple schools on campus, and they were open to me, which is what the University of Kansas is all about. And it's an incredible place. It was also an affordable education, very affordable, and um but also amazing people um, in the global indigenous school and the the linguistic school. And um, there's an African um, art histories, our religion school. That's just incredible. I mean, it's just, I couldn't, I can't say enough about it, but it's also in the middle of the Midwest. So you can't be there without knowing the land you're on and the history of what transpired there and the movement westward. So the first broken treaty quilt was not a broken treaty quilt. There were two iterations and one I just pulled out the other day and had totally forgot about that I had made this 
banner that it's just a square canvas where I stitched on assimilation made in America with calico fabric. And calico fabric was the first milled commodity in the United States on the Eastern seaboard that was created from cotton that was grown and harvested by slaves in the South. And it is a pretty thin cotton fabric that is for quilt making and dressmaking and also flour sacks and sugar sacks were made. They held the grains because um, those manufacturers realized that women were buying them and making fab, making dresses and such out of them. So um, it was the first milled commodity for export to other countries. And where I grew up in Southern Maine, the first calico mill was actually in Dover, New Hampshire, not far from where I lived. And actually, I knew those mills, but I didn't know the history. I had to learn that at the University of Kansas. So, yeah, so the second group of work I did were these basketball assimilation banners. And the basketball assimilation banners are referring to being at University of Kansas with um, Bill Self and the Jayhawks, who are an amazing um, basketball team, but also um, James Naismith had been there for 37 years and he was the creator of the game of basketball. There's another school in Lawrence, Kansas, not even a mile down the road called Haskell Indian Nations University, which was the second boarding school in the United States. It's the only boarding school that was once a boarding school in the United States for um, Native American indigenous children that has evolved from being a boarding school for 35, 40 years to then becoming um, like a preparatory school, to then becoming a junior college, to then becoming a four, the only four-year accredited university for Native American students in the United States. And it's actually, it's a really good school. Um, and I taught there for a few years after, like I taught there a bit while I was in grad school. And then, um, I actually had a, ten, uh, not a tenure track, a, um, adjunct teaching position there for a couple of years. And I'm still in touch with the students that I had from there who are, have become friends who are now getting their master's degrees and becoming role models for their communities and giving back and making change which is really great but it's a a fantastic place I just I was just in Lawrence for about three weeks in March and I spent some time at Haskell um I was working with the Lawrence Art Center and a lot of I mean I was focusing on basketball while I was there but the first day I got there this woman who works at the Art Center told me, you know, there's a really good women's team at Haskell. And I said, what's Haskell? Um, And so I I went there a few times. I spoke with an administrator. um, And unfortunately, their their season was, um, their basketball season was done by the time I got there. So I wasn't able to watch a game. But I've been in touch. I'm trying to learn more about, about Haskell. I hadn't spent, I had driven through Kansas before, but I had not spent a lot of time there, and I didn't realize that Lawrence has these hills in it, uh, and so that was kind of a um, just you know a surprise. But when I went to Haskell, like there was just such a, um, it just has such a strong buzz to it, like that campus yeah. where it's located and that that stadium 
um, yeah. that exists there and yes. just this openness that doesn't exist on the KU campus exists at Haskell because it's just sort of – it's like at the edge right. more. And, and so it just it had yeah. this, this very strong pull to me. It, it was a really interesting place. So that, that, that um, gymnasium is one of the first gymnasiums. There are two – so James Naismith created the game of basketball. He was at Haskell. He was um, working with the native students and athletes. And he is the reason that gymnasium was built. And it's one of those stadium gymnasiums. I don't know if you were able to go in it or not, but there's like the, there's no bleachers. Mm-hmm. It has a balcony. Yeah. So the early game of basketball was a very participatory. Like the, if the ball went up to the stadium right. upper area, they would throw the ball back down and, the spectators could become involved. Um, the first gymnasium was at um, Carlisle. And that gymnasium, I'm told, is still there. I've seen pictures of it. I have not gone, and um, I don't really have any plans to visit Carlisle. I thought about it a couple times, and I've had an opportunity a couple times, but I'm just not ready to do that. I also think like it's a cancerous place. It's surrounded by an army barracks. It has barbed wire around it. You know, the military does their officer training amongst the barracks. It's just like, it's not a good place. Right. Um, but, and there's also a lot of healing that has to seriously happen. And a lot of, um, this could be a whole other conversation. Okay, so an I want to go yes, back. The, the yes, it's an important conversation, <laughs> but there's um, hours sure. could be spent. So I'm just thinking. Um, yes. So. So I did these basketball assimilation banners. I had been doing the basketballs. So the um, I think I'm going to jump around a little bit because I feel like I have to bring this in and then go back to the broken treaty quotes. So uh, it was in graduate school. It was my second semester. It's a three-year program. I started out my semester doing what I knew, painting, drawing, printmaking, working with color. And I realized that semester that I needed to create a shift that the work I was making wasn't having the statement. I was there to do the work. I was willing to do something entirely new. I thought about it and decided it needed to be ceramics. This medium had to be ceramics. I wanted, to, and then it just came to me that I wanted to make. Oh, I was also reading um, this Brian Youngen. Um, he's a Northwest Coast artist. I read this reader, this small reader, and this essay by Homi K. Baba about um, power and art and power object and game player and protagonist and um, having an object that is a signifier that people will recognize and automatically accept. Um, so I, you know, I was at the University of Kansas that first year um the Jayhawks were part of the final four but they didn't win the championship um the second year they actually did but I decided it had to be an NBA regulation um um, it had to be an NBA regulation basketball and my son our younger son um, played basketball all through growing up high school and then he went to a post-grad school and then he got accepted to a college where he would play basketball and he decided he wanted to focus on academics instead which he became a historian which is cool yeah now he's a sommelier which is really cool (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. Wow. um, Yeah. So he sent me one of his basketballs because I felt like it had to be connected to home and connected to actually something that family had had their hands on and not just go and buy a brand new basketball. And that's still the basketball I make my molds from. Wow. Um, so I learned, I had learned how to make molds in undergrad at Maine College of Art. Um, but I went to the ceramics professor at KU Marshall Mon and I asked him if I could come down into ceramics, relearn how to make molds so that I could make this mold. And my first mold was super rough, super dirty, um, but did it, did the job super heavy. It was very heavy. I've since learned um, how to make much better molds. Of course, I went to Kohler and really perfected my molds there, but I have an assistant, Chris Burke, who's an amazing mold maker that works with me, and um, a ceramic studio in Portland, Oregon called Mud Shark Studios, and they help me do production because um, I have a studio here in Vancouver, and I can use the Emily Carr Studios, not now, but um, mostly I... I realized like I don't have the financial ability to just have all these spaces. Mm-hmm. So I think I find the community and the assistance that I can help support and who can help create the work. So I see the work as it's a team effort, like literally it's a team effort, but the basketball signifies assimilation practices. And also that if you're a good athlete, no matter where you come from, you're instantly assimilated into popular culture and accepted. Also, um, you have a chance if you are from a Native American community, um, Native American indigenous community or reservation or place of people and belonging, you can have access to a good education through athletic scholarship, also a very good education. And then you can maybe even go forward and play on a, you know, a professional team. And then almost a hundred percent people return to the reservation or the land or the community. And they give these, bring these skills back home and they're a role model. They're also about health and well-being Cause if you're an athlete, your physical body is healthy. Your mind is like processing and is healthy. And you're giving that back to your community. If you're an artist, being an artist from an indigenous community is the same way. Um, You bring the skills back and it's honored. And um, there's a intention to give your skills back to youth and to have the future generations be healthy. I saw something when I was at the Smithsonian, it was this sort of census and they said that 74% of native Americans practice art. I would say it's actually much higher. It's probably closer to 95 to hundred percent because people are so resourceful and they can make something with anything. And it, it stems back to our heritage and, being respectful and one with the land and creating artwork and reciprocity to the land and creating only what we needed and being able to travel with what we needed, but everything we could made could return to the land and 
have a has a healing element for the mind and the spirit in the land of the people. So that was what the basketball signified. Um, I bisque fire from the mold. You know, it's like bisque firing the mold. But then I chose being not a ceramic artist. But being an encaustic artist, someone who works with wax, um, in my painting, ceramic is a great surface for encaustic work. And I just started using the encaustic. But I also incorporated research in museums. And I was working at the Spencer Museum in their archives. And they're a great team there. And that was my first archive work going in and looking what they had in the archive and then studying it and sketching it and photographing it and then continuing to do a little bit of research on where these pieces came from and then creating each basketball was it was and still is an interpretation of archival research from each location and when you say each location is that that is with with each tribe um yes no or no i am talking more about um yes with each nation of people often remember that a lot of these pieces and archives were originally looted sure okay. and so they could be mismarked they could also be unidentified like literally unidentified and that's where that unidentified comes into my work because i'm trying to honor the belongings the objects of belongings and the people who have been for hundreds of years now, just put into this unidentified and unimportant category. Um, so trying to figure out sometimes when you're a person who is intuitive and um, sensory-wise, um, someone who is connected spiritually to people in place, I often hold objects just trying to get an intention from who the original maker was, what this work was. I'm very respectful. I'm not doing this with anything I shouldn't be. Seeing, holding, participating with, very, very respectful. And um, I've had some instances where I've had to learn that the hard way, just being like cabinets were open without thinking about it first from a curatorial standpoint, that didn't happen at this, um, no. Spencer, by the way. Um, but, you know, you should only be looking at objects that you have permission to or that um, literal permission from people in place or that um, would not in their original use have been for sacred ceremony. And as a person of a hybrid descent, I'm descent. Um, I don't have enrollment. I also want to respect that there's a place for this work to be made and represented and to do it in its complete likeness would be um, disrespectful and also taking away from the people now. And I, I just want to be an example on how to behave so that we're, that I don't continue to represent a stereotype or I just don't take without, I just don't take like there's, uh, I want to give back only and not take. Sure. And then I, you know, I am an artist, so I am interpreting what I see and how um, 
I how I see things and I'm state making statements about these collections and how they were gathered. Um, but I I also want to um, I really want contemporary culture who are the colonizers of which I'm half, right? So my last name is significant of being an original um, colonizer in the United States. Um, so I have to be an educator for that voice so that they can hopefully see and open up to the original basketball banners were meant for a video that would have happened in the Haskell Gymnasium. And I still would like to do that project. It just hasn't happened yet. <laughs> um, life just shifted and changed and I found myself moving. And um, But it's still in the works and um, I hope it does help happen at some point. Um, and the basketballs will be part of that project too, the ceramic basketballs. Um, but the basketball banners had giant silhouettes of from the backs of the peace treaty medals um, being the presidential silhouettes in calico fabric and also the handshake and um, the ax and the peace pipe and the presidential, the peace treaty medals have a huge connection. The president's every single treaty that was governed by the president of the time, each chief was given a peace treaty medal for signing the treaties. And the chiefs thought it was a great honor. And the United States gave these out freely, but they came with conditions. So on one side were the peace treaty medal silhouettes, and on the other side are the, the words of um, inherited trauma, like the results of. And they came from dialogue I was having with this um, group of students, masters and PhD students from the University of Kansas and a few Haskell students who were taking classes and professors at the University of Kansas. They have a great relationship where if you start out at Haskell, you can automatically enroll at the same tuition rate or very less true tuition rate at um, KU. So it's a really great relationship and it's nurtured and fantastic. So Massacre is murder, um, assimilation made in America, um, seven banners. They get blood trauma. You know, when I was at KU, it was scientifically proven that we carry the trauma in our blood like it's actually part of our DNA. And so that was incredible to be part of a time where that was actually scientifically proven. And so now it's fact. Um, and I graduated in 2013. I had done this one banner that said assimilation made in America. And then I did the um, seven basketball banners in June of 2013 when I was at a residency in Key West. And then that August, I was with my mother in Massachusetts because my family still lives in Southern Maine. And we went to a flea market and I found an antique quilt, which I bought not knowing what I would do with it and that night I dreamt that I had to cut an entire broken treaty and stitch it on this quilt um that's how it happened 
And I went back to Lawrence, Kansas, where I was living still, and I started cutting letters. And the first one took me nine months to cut the letters. Of course, I'm cutting letter by letter thinking, will this even work? (laughs) I just graduated. I'm not sure what I'm doing, but I do. I do. Um, But, you know, self-doubt comes into the studio and to your practice and tears and healing. And it's definitely something that you're constantly checking yourself if you do this kind of work like will this create something will this do it am I spending all this time doing something that won't work but then the minute I started placing the letters on that antique quilt I knew I knew it was it was something it was going to work it had everything that I had worked for for so many years to learn and build and create Um, it had that possibility and as I was finishing placing letters and I I was posting on Facebook and a curator from the Nerman Museum reached out to me and asked me to first give a lecture and then gave me my first solo show so that that happened pretty fast so then I was given four months to make seven and that was the start of my creating a budget and borrowing money from my mother so that I could pay assistance to help me cut letters because there was no way I could do it by myself. But that collective voice I realized was so powerful and having assistance and having them be invested in the project and really wanting to also make change and paying a really decent wage so that I wasn't expecting them to do something for nothing because which often has happened you know, an artist, contemporary artist who's made it often expects, has historically expected younger artists to do work for free. And I really feel strongly that that's wrong and needs to change, but also that um, I just can't do this kind of work if I'm doing that. It, The energy of doing that would just rob anything from the historical change that could happen. So. Um, So in January of 2015, my first solo show opened and I had seven broken treaty quilts. I've since done, I'm now at 50. Wow. My gosh. Yeah. And with the help of assistance, I definitely with the help of assistance right now, I have six assistants who help me cut letters. And um, I've been working toward a 50 quilt show. It's really unbelievable that I've already finished 50, but um, I want to have a 50 quilt show that travels to 50 states and um, can be installed in places that aren't necessarily like contemporary museums, like other places, even if it's up for a couple weeks and it moves to just have, you know, people see the work and understand what the history is and have start to have a knowledge of that so that they can start and creating that shift in understanding is what really can create the the bigger ripple effect of um writing writing like the wrongs that are in our history that i just burying them is not doing anything no. hasn't done anything and i mean i think that's so relevant to what what we're experiencing yes. right now at this idea right. of um I think each time one of uh, these police shootings of um, an unarmed black person becomes public, 
it's like this wave of responses and then things subside. And this idea that like there can, they're subsiding, of course, like it's hard to keep momentum up forever, but at the same time, Mm -hmm. it's like um, burying, subsiding maybe is a form of burying to a certain extent when we're talking about these huge structural issues that feel overwhelming. And yeah, yeah, it's just, it, it, it feels important to, um, yep, just address them over and over again. And I think that also this other part you're mentioning about your work where you're wanting to uh, adequately compensate the people that are working for you. And Mm -hmm. that is also, I think, a part of the work in a sense of undoing those wrongs that that have been sort of... um, uh, devaluing people's skills right. or people's talents, like throughout. I mean, and of course, right. this this is such a range of how that works. From like the recent, from like the the undergrad who gets asked to you know photograph an event for free or whatever right. it is, like to of course like things that are far more extreme than that. But this idea of like I'm going to profit immensely off of your labor when you are not getting anything in return. Um, even within your own practice, you're able to to make a statement before the work is even finished about these wrongs yeah. we need to right. And one other thing I was just thinking about too is that my assistants are all artists. Um, one of them is actually a retired DNA geneticist. I met her when I was up at Dartmouth and she came to every single just about open letter cutting session I had up at Dartmouth when I was the artist in residence. And they are all artists. They are all creative. She's a basket maker and she does beautiful, makes beautiful baskets. Um, but I'm also supporting their work and their career. And I edit their writing. I give back to them. I help promote them. I'm, you know, they may not be with me forever and that's okay because I want them to be successful in their own right and don't want to keep them down or in a place where this is the only thing I expect from them ever, you know, and they're just beautiful people. They're just amazing people. So, um, yeah. So, you know, I think the time of being socially isolating and how much we're looking at social media right now is so, I think it's hugely important to this shift that's happening and how we're all aware of what is happening because people are out there with their cameras and doing the work on the ground and, um, or those who can't are donating money in support of, you know, the movements and bailing people out of jail and um, feeding people. And um I think this pandemic sort of started out this time of social isolating started out as like shows that were art shows that were being canceled or closed. And I even experienced that I had a solo show open in New York and it had to close six days in. And then, you know, there are all these, there are these few, a few grant funding opportunities for artists and it's just incredible. Um, One of them I did apply so I could get some things covered from, you know, the expenses. Um, and I had a response that they had 55,000 applicants for 500 grants, the artist relief grant. Like how can that possibly sustain anything? And it made me realize, okay, well maybe don't, don't do that anymore. You know, don't, I'm okay. Everything will work out. Um, but I just, you know, think that, 
everybody's struggling to survive right now and it's hard across the board right now in the United States. I know that like there could possibly be a huge recession if it isn't already happening and people are out of work and they're worried about paying their mortgage and there there's a lot of there's a lot of um, upset and worry happening, but that this social change can happen and that people that, you know, African-American people and people of color have to be in fear their whole life is, is not acceptable anymore. It's horrible. And we, we all need to do the people of privilege who never have had to face that um, kind of fear anxiety of losing your children just because they want to walk down the street or losing your son or your daughter or your husband or your wife because someone made a mistake or someone wasn't thinking or that you know we gave the we've given the police so much power well the police having so much power is very similar to what happened in the 1860s with the cavalrys moving west to just remove people and the police are there as the police have like become these systems of policing from the anti like the anti-slavery um rebellion they were right. they were that system was created to keep african american slaves down so here we are there's still it's still this this rotten rotten history that and We've, I don't know, just also seeing how much they have much more protection. The police have much more protection than our our healthcare workers. Right, like where you put your money is what has oh, power. Um, right, and right. So, so it just, yeah, it's incredible that that, and I think also this like control, um, which I think goes back to to Carlisle a lot, is like mm-hmm. this control over people's I mean literally like taking people from their families or their their people and and, and right. putting them in this space to to sort and creating this other uh, environment for them to kind of uh, so that the 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 original culture uh, the original language whatever it is becomes uh, lost or secondary you know that it's just uh, this way of controlling the body controlling the mind Um, which is so dangerous. Uh, Yes. And that it still continues and that this country was formed doing that. And every time I say this country, I'm reminding myself that I'm right now on the lands of the um, indigenous people in BC, the Wet'suwet'en, the Squamish, the Tsleil-Waututh. Like I'm, I'm on, I have to acknowledge right now that I'm in another land so I'm not in the United States and thinking about even land. I've been thinking a lot about land recognition and even for my saying that, like, what does it really mean? Like, what does it mean? Like, can we have the intention to recognize the land, but can we also give back to the people that gave so much of themselves, gave everything of themselves so that, you know, we could be what we are today. I think we all have to think about giving back. Yeah. Because the recognition, I think, is it's an important thing to do. So, you know, sometimes, like you were just recognizing the 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 land that you're on and and who it belonged to, and and right. 
I think that that is a really important thing to do. And then it's just this question of what happens after we recognize it. Do we, are we comfortable with just moving on um, as before, knowing that we're on this this land or knowing that the people that were originally on this land are now uh, be, being harmed through this institution? Yeah. Yeah. And even the bill, I don't know if you saw that President Trump just passed saying that um, because of because of the pandemic and the riots, he's now um, just passed a, I'm trying to find it. He just passed a bill, an order to waive environmental reviews. Right, because they take too long. Projects. <laughs> and here, um, the Wet'suwet'en here in BC have been forced off their lands so that pipelines can go through. And there's been a spill, by the way, already. There's been an oil spill here. And oil spills happen all the time. And I think it's time to give back the land. And I have been seeing that people are actually giving back land. They're giving back land. Where So so the absurdity of President Trump, I mean, just on almost every level and including just like that the the decisions he makes have no, uh, seem to have no rationale or actual. Yes reasoning behind them that that could possibly be seen as like caring for other humans um and you know except for the white majority which is a huge (laughs) issue um so when i giggle not giggle when i laugh at that it's this exasperation of how how ridiculous and absurd this is um and and what you're saying and i'm wondering where you are seeing that people are giving back the land so there has been a movement it's it's a smaller movement right now, but in different communities, I keep, I have been reading and collecting um, names and articles of people in the Midwest and um, California where people have literally given back. They've had this land in their family for generations and, or that they were just well off and bought this land at a good price at some point and realized who the original people of the land were and giving it back to the people like literally giving it back, like just giving it back. And I have had, you know, I do these open letter cutting sessions at different exhibitions and events um, where I go in and I bring my open letter, these letter cutting kits that started at Dartmouth with just this idea of like asking the public to come in and have these conversations. And there have been people there who have been like, like in Iowa, the Des Moines Art Center, I met this couple that, you know, he had lived on this land for, five generations of his family before him and he's like I have two sons they don't need all this land and I we were talking about giving back the land and I think it actually probably will happen with that family because they're so conscientious and um, just really good people who are are just wake opening up their minds body spirit to like what's really what they really want to know now um, you know, our land has had a lot of scars and a lot of healing can be done. And I think connecting it back to the land is like beyond land recognition is really important. Yeah. Um, and I think that realization that you have something to give is is really important because and I think that was also something that came along with the pandemic um, that I I felt very like strapped before the pandemic happened and then realizing that like I, there's always something you can give 
yeah. to a certain extent. And I mean, I think that especially like, um, I mean, I, I don't think that has to be like a blanket statement or true of everyone, especially people that have generationally been oppressed. But mm-hmm. just thinking that like there's there's always something to offer. Um, right. And applying, trying to apply that to myself, even though, you know, I, I, artists aren't, it's not easy being a working artist, but at the same time, it's like, there's always something, there's always something to give. And that's just, a, that's a, that it was very empowering to realize that. Yeah, absolutely. There's always something to give. And, you know, the, the gentleman in DC, his name is Aaron Guile, I believe, that opened up his house to like 70, 100 protesters that were. Right. Um, being um i forget that term that forcing right kind of cornered yeah oh my gosh so unbelievable it's happened it happened in brooklyn too on a bridge Mm -hmm. the police did that and even Um, thinking i was thinking the other day about that story of 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 him opening up his house is that in that sense it's important that not everyone is on the street because then there's someone that is not cornered and not in that position that is like come in you know, right. that they have, right. they can play that role and that can be what they do. They're, they're at home and then they can open up their house. Right. Um, it's and, the, it's a new safety net of protection. Right. Cause he, if he was out there, he would also be sort of trapped. So this right. idea that like, if, if there's just these different ways to, to contribute and we need to spread that out as much as possible so that we create right. like. Uh, as many safe places, both physical and non-physical as possible. Right, right. I want to just read this the statement that you made in one of your written, one of your descriptions of mm-hmm. uh, a body of work. Just I think it's such an important place to, it seems like this particular line really encompasses multiple bodies of work and also just totally speaks to how we deal with what is happening right now. Um mm-hmm. And that's, to my people, honoring history is important, for necessary change does not happen intentionally unless one does so. There's, there's no way to acknowledge and create systematic change without understanding the challenges that have occurred and been presented before us in our past. If you are of United States, Native American, African descent, and you don't understand the history and the problems that happened with slavery, and even the history of the United States and Abraham Lincoln, you know, creating the um, 13th Amendment, the 13th Amendment being created, if that should be watched, by the way, on Netflix, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't know this history or if, you know, you, for, for me, if you're disconnected, you don't know, and you don't have a basis of understanding and therefore you just are in, you're in the present. Yes, but you're not, you don't have any idea where to start. I think really looking at our history and not the dictated history of what we're forced to learn in K through 12, because that's a very mandated history, but really stepping outside your comfort zone and reading and listening and discovering anything you can, you can get really specific and actually Google Scholar is much better than Google too, I want to say, because it's based in actual research. 
Uh, it's just not something like you can really go into a rabbit hole of things you think are accurate, but they might not be accurate on just regular Google. Learn that at KU and graduate school. Thank you. Um, and if you if you're not acknowledging what came before, it could unintentionally be recreated. And so if it's unintentionally being recreated, even if it's done with good intentions, but you're just perpetuating the same history, you're not doing anything. You're just staying stagnant. I think this was for me something I had to learn how to be uncomfortable with. I had to learn how to go inward and look at, you know, what was really traumatic, like what, what the traumas were I was carrying so that I could heal them for my children, for my family, for people I know, for family I love, for people I love, for students, like students, how can I teach students effectively if I can't also give to them the ability to heal? Even just in a small seed of knowing how to start. If we don't start doing this as a collective, we know what will happen because we're, it's happening before us right now. We can see it. Even if you're not in present on the ground, if you're not, if you're not, even if you're trying not to know what's happening right now, you can't avoid it anymore. And even if you never thought it was an issue, all these things that are coming to light being issues, of course, like people of color should be able to live their life with the same freedoms equal to anybody else. The people who are privileged need to start examining the history and understanding their role in it and turning a blind eye and saying, it doesn't affect me. It doesn't exist. It doesn't, will not work. We all have to work co collectively on this. And we all have to do it from the goodness of our hearts for just learning. And we have to be able to be vulnerable and realize we don't understand everything. That's okay. Being vulnerable is okay you will survive. You will have the power to acknowledge that maybe you were wrong or maybe you just didn't know. From no fault of our sure. many people are of our own, like we were dictated to what the history we should know. So white privilege in a sense isn't saying that it's everybody's fault. It's saying that we were mandated to but now we can make a choice and we should collectively. So I think I am, I think I answered that. Yes. I, I, and I think but, you're so, yeah. you're, it's just, it's, it's so right. And it's, um, it, it is about being vulnerable and is about, um, uh, acknowledging, uh, through that, through the act of vulnerability or, you know, maybe stumbling a little bit through how, how you learn and maybe right. not being, being okay with being an imperfect ally until you can right. be a perfect ally. Right. Um, right. And, and let's stop like this ideal of perfection. Sure. 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 Like yes. Bad, this, this ideal of perfection is not something we want to model towards. 
No, it's just not sustainable. It's not right. Yes, it's I should not, have used yeah. a different word, but no, yes, no, no. And yes. I wasn't trying to be critical of, of that. Course. I was just saying that you know, there's like this per this perfect in parentheses model of how we're supposed to be. But honestly, you know, learning how to fail and learning how to do things imperfectly is how is how we can better ourselves right now. Yes, yeah, but option. doing it in a way that means, but doing it in a way that is at the root of it has a good intention behind it. Yeah, definitely. I so appreciate your willingness to share. <laughs> <laughs> well, and thank you so much, and thank you too for, you know, opening up this container and allowing me to um, really consider what can I, what can I give right now and how can I help? So um, thank you for just like being open to would this work right now? Would this not work right now? And oh yeah, I am. Um, I feel, I feel really, I feel good about this conversation and I hope that anybody listening has open hearts and open minds and um I just send everybody good energy and want us to be in a place of healing and betterment Mm -hmm. and black lives matter and people's lives matter and people of color should never have to experience what they've had to endure for so long. Yeah. And I wanted to also recognize this, this, this comment you made about having invited people. I think maybe you said you were in Vermont and you had invited people to work, just maybe not your assistants, but like other people to work mm-hmm. on the, the uh, treaties. Mm-hmm. I just love that idea as a form of social practice of being like, you you make the thing and then you'll be invested <laughs> in it. You know, like. <laughs> well, this, yeah. right. Because having the experience of having the conversation and cut, even just cutting one letter it sure. changes it changes the conversation and creates it like it really roots it. And it was at Dartmouth college, which was right on the Vermont border yeah. um, in uh, Hanover, New Hampshire. But I've done it, I think 40 something times since then. And it's part, every single exhibition I have, I try to have some sort of element if it's possible to be able to travel there and do the open letter cutting session and do a broken treaty reading performance where I'm wearing the treaty and embodying the language of the treaty that I'm wearing and connecting again back to the land. But also there's this important thing where that performance is very much about saying, reading the treaty out loud so that the viewers, the people coming in to participate with this activation are opening up their hearts and minds to the language. So if you, if you just read something and you're not reading it out loud, your your mind and body are not aligned. And that's something I learned from one of my great mentor, George Longfish, who's Seneca Tuscarero. And um, just a practice that I learned from him, but also have brought fully into my studio process and activation project for um, activating the work in museums and in exhibition. And that creates another kind of shift as just as the cutting the letter, inviting the viewer to cut the letters also is really huge. And it's not about, you know, 
for the broken treaty quilts, I want perfect letters because I want it to refer back to the original font from the Indian Wars newspapers. But for the open letter cutting sessions, it's not that at all. And I learned right in the beginning that it's not about control. It's not about control at all. It's about the conversation. And that work, the so far, um, the third broken treaty quilt letters have treaty has been cut three of them. I haven't assembled them yet. I'm saving them for the 50 quilt show. Mm -hmm. And there's this element that happens in the exhibition where uh, many times I've written the names of the signers from each treaty that were forced to sign this document. I've written their names on the wall. Um, Another form of activation, um, bringing them into present day, but for the 50 quilt show for these treaties, quilts that were done in public with public help, I'll have the names of the people who help cut letters on the wall. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. It's it's this other, and also keeping in touch with them to saying, Hey, this is where this is now. And this is what you've helped do. That's so great. And I think also just as far as sometimes uh, viewers, people who are outside of, the art world, quote unquote, as an establishment, mm-hmm. can feel sort of intimidated by w- what they're seeing and what it requires right. of them to understand what they're looking at right. and not getting it and not, you know, and and I just love this idea that it's like, I think that people are more likely to ask their questions and pursue knowledge when they are involved in some way and they feel right. that mm-hmm. this is also like belongs to them in some way. Right. It's a really powerful tool. Yeah. And I love yeah. this idea of, like, then their names. But, I mean, it just, it can just continue on. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm excited at the point where this bigger project does happen and this work can get created and does travel for exhibition and installment that those quilts are going to be pretty special. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's been children that have helped cut. And at the Des Moines Arts Center, when I was an artist in residence last fall, I think 250 people or a little more than 250 people came and helped cut letters. And we filled up this whole window of the IMP wing, this glass window of the letters. And it was just like incredible. Um, that was incredible. And it, it was not prepared for it because it was the largest event. I didn't expect it. Amazing marketing. And so many people came out to help. And it was just, it was just fantastic. <laughs> it was great. So it's going to be fun to see those come together. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you, Gina, for making oh, the time. Thanks, Abigail. Thank you so much for opening up this container and this um, podcast. And thanks for the good work you're doing. Good. Okay. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Have a wonderful rest of your day and good weekend. Take care. Bye, Gina. You too. Bye-bye.